Good morning, Hope Church. Good morning. Good to see everyone here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul Hahnemann. I am one of a few commissioned pastors here, commissioned by you, Hope Church, um, specifically in the area of chaplaincy. And once in a while, they let me get up here and preach. And uh, it's a pleasure to uh, have the opportunity to do so and, and travel through the Word of God with you while uh, Pastor Greg is out on sabbatical for a few weeks, a well-deserved sabbatical. Before we dive into the Word of God, um, I want to show you a couple pictures here. Um, this first one, do you all have kitchen tables with legs like that? Our kitchen table has four legs a lot like that, all the same. And those are created on a lathe, right? They're turned on a lathe. There's a block of wood that turns at high speed and the chisel goes down. How do they get those to be identical to one another? They have a template. Phil is our resident woodworking master, so he knows this. So they create a template if it's made by hand. Of course, in modern day, they use computer programs with computer-aided manufacturing. But the old-fashioned way, they would make a template, they'd attach it to the lathe table, and then there's a, a holder, a stand that the chisels, you know, is placed in, and as the wood is turning on the lathe, they'd follow that template down the length of the block of wood and get the same identical leg every time. Another example, when I started in on this sermon, I opened up a new PowerPoint document and I went to all the templates. You've probably seen that as well. There are different themes, different colors, different fonts. Um, so you pick the one uh, that you need that has the desired outcome that you want. So templates are things are models that help us get to a desired outcome of some kind. Today, we're going to spend time in Psalm 51. Um, If you have your Bibles, please open them up. We're going to read the whole thing. Um, If you're using the Black Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 562. There's also a beige-colored bulletin. Um, a sheet in your bulletins, so you can pull that out as well. Um, Psalm 51 is one of the most famous psalms in the Bible, uh, perhaps the most famous. plays a key role in, in, in Christian and Judaic liturgy. Um, it was written by David. He wrote about half of the psalms in, in the Bible. David the shepherd boy, the 16-year-old shepherd boy who took down Goliath. He was a military leader. He was an accomplished musician. He was a poet. He was a king. And the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. So this is one of my favorite psalms. I could preach this for weeks, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to preach it all today. It's only going to be about three hours. So we should be out of here at lunch by about 2.30. So Jack, don't worry when you get hungry. But we're going to fly through this psalm real quickly, and we're going to take out valuable spiritual nuggets uh, that we can apply to our walks uh, with the Lord. So if you look at the introductory statement here, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So if you're a student of the Bible, you know that story. Just real quickly... 
David's hanging out at the palace. He's bored. He looks at an adjacent rooftop, and there's this beautiful, young, naked lady taking a bath. David is overcome with lust. Gotta have her, gotta have her, gotta have her, gotta have her. Well, one of the issues is she's married. She's married to this military man, a guy by the name of Uriah. David says, gotta have her, gotta have her, gotta have her, gotta have her. Has her brought to the palace, and he sleeps with her. So right out of the bat, we're looking at abuse of power. We're looking at coercion. We're looking at adultery. We're possibly even looking at rape. So, oops, Bathsheba gets pregnant. So David goes into cover-up sin mode. He enacts several schemes to try to cover up his sin. They all fail. He eventually has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered. Then he marries Bathsheba, takes her as his own. This, of course, did not please God. God sends the prophet Nathan to David and calls him out on it. You are the man. And David, is, he's busted. He goes from being this mighty king to about this big, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. So that's the context in which David is writing this famous psalm. Now, I want to propose to you before we jump in that Psalm 51 is a template of sorts. It's a template for repentance, but it's also a template for our relationships with God, how our relationships should be with God. So track with me on that concept as we go through the psalm. Let's dive into the text. Verses 1 through 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out all of my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice here how David approaches God with a sense of humility with a sense of humility. He's not going before God saying, hey, I'm king. I'm this awesome harp player. I can shred licks like Eddie Van Halen. Um, I'm a great poet. I'm a military leader. No, 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 no. He is going into God's presence, appealing to God's attributes according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. So right away, he's setting the trajectory for this psalm. We know that this is a psalm of repentance, and David is looking for forgiveness and mercy. When we get into verses 3 through 6, David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, 
and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So here in this passage, David accepts responsibility for his own sin. He owns it. He straight up owns it. He says, you know, against you, you only have I sinned. That verse jumps out at me because I say, hey, wait, 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 wait. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Didn't he sin against them? Well, he did, and we're going to see here a little bit later that he knows that he did. But he's the king. He's not going to answer to really anybody on earth for this. He is talking about sinning directly against God, violating God's holy standards so that when God judges him, God is justified in his judgment upon David's sin. That's what he's referring to here in this passage. God is holy, and David has the fear of God in his heart. In verse 5, we read, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now that verse, it's not uncommon to bump into people who think that that verse is talking about the act of sex between David's father, Jesse, and his mother. I disagree. To that I say no. We're not talking about the sexual act of of David's parents. What David is talking about here is what theologians call original sin. So that's a fancy theological term for we're born this way. We're born in sin. We see this taught throughout the Bible. In the New Testament, we see that uh, in Adam, that death and sin came into the human race. Okay, that's passed on to us seminally. Everybody from Adam all the way down through the course of history is under death because of uh, condemnation uh, and sin. So another way of saying that is we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. See the difference there? So that's what the Bible teaches about original sin. Now, I understand in today's culture that can be pretty tough to swallow. That's not a real popular concept to throw out there to people. But um, has anybody in here ever had a two-year-old? Raise your hand if you've had a two-year-old in your house before. Okay, so we all know what the terrible twos are like, do we not? So, you know, their, their, their first words when they're literal are like, and I can, I, I can see the stones over here laughing because they're walking through this together. It's, it's Mama, oh, Dada, oh, isn't that so sweet? And then they hit the terrible twos and then words like, no, you know, my will is supreme, I'm going to get what I want. Or, or how about this one? Mine, mine, this is mine, it's all mine, right? Our our kids weren't born knowing how to share. They weren't born knowing how to be gracious. They weren't born knowing how to be godly. That's that's part of the shock of the terrible twos for them because we're trying to keep them on the path and say, hey, man, life's not going to go well for you if if this is how you're going to behave for, you know, the, the, the next 80 years of your life, Okay. The terrible twos and original sin. So football games have halftime. Baseball games have the seventh inning stretch. Yes? Um, Hockey games have a 15-minute break between periods. 
So this, I want to welcome you to the shameless sermon plug portion of this sermon. If we can have the slide, please, Trudy. Um, we're talking about original sin today. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty heavy topic. But this shameless sermon plug is to invite you back in two weeks. Because I have the opportunity and the privilege of coming here to preach again. And in two weeks, we're going to be talking about our identities in Christ Jesus. Who we are when we've given our lives to Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in us. So come back to that. I want to invite you back to that. That concludes the shameless sermon plug portion of this sermon. Thank you for humoring me through that. So let's dive back into the text in, in verses 7 through 9. Let's look at those. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Remember, this is poetry we're reading. Hyssop is a, a mint-like herb in the Middle East. that's um, fragrant. Um, that is, is used in bathing, added to baths. Um, snow. We've all seen snow, at least those of us from Yankee land. I grew up in Maine. These big snowstorms would come. We'd get a couple feet of snow, and you'd go out in the morning in this fresh blanket of snow, untouched, no prints, no indentations, you know, no dirt, just beautiful white covering of snow over the ground. Um, David saying, make me as white and as pure as snow. He uses this term in, in verse 8, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That's a metaphorical term. And when we read that in, in the Old Testament, the, the broken bones refer to a deep soul wound, a grief, um, an affliction of, of the heart, just that burden that we sometimes carry on our heart. And that's what David is carrying here. Remember, he's, he's been busted in some major sin, murder, adultery, and called out for it. But I, let's be kind to David, okay, uh, this man after God's own heart, because I, I don't think there's one of us in here that would like to come up here and have their deepest, darkest sins put up on the screen for everyone else to see and critique. I know I sure wouldn't. Okay, so, but that's where David is right now. He's, he's been called out. He's in, he's in a lot of emotional and spiritual pain here. In verse 9, he's asking God, you know, hide your face from my sin um, and blot out all my iniquities. This spirit of humility with which David is approaching God is very similar um, to something that Jesus taught in one of his parables, um, specifically the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me read this to you. This is from Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, 
one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee in this parable was anything but humble. But the tax collector very much exhibited a similar spirit to what David is showing us here in Psalm 51. Continuing the text, we get into verses 10 through 12. Here, um, David is petitioning for purity. Um, He is seeking renewal and restoration from God. Let me read that to you. Verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Create in me a clean heart, O God. David is saying the heart is central to our relationship. He's showing us us that in this psalm. And basically, the heart is the heart of the matter in our relationships with God. We see this throughout the Bible, very famously in Deuteronomy 6, in, in, in what is called the Shema. It's one of the most famous passages in Judaism. Moses wrote, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. That sound familiar? That's where Jesus got one of the two greatest commandments. He pulled it right out of that scripture. But we see in the Bible that, that, that out of an evil heart comes evil. Out of a good heart comes good. Heart in the Bible um, can mean a lot of different things. It, it can certainly mean emotion. So we look at Jesus in the upper room with the disciples In John 14, he says, let your hearts not be troubled. That's an emotional statement. He's talking about emotion there. But heart can also be used to refer to the centrality of our spirituality, of our walk with God. So referring to our our soul compass, our, our GPS map, our Google Maps of our heart that helps us navigate everyday life that permeates our life and in, in, in how we live. Um, during my service as a, as, a, as a hospital chaplain, I've gotten to meet 
people from all over the world and all different kinds of people. It's been wonderful. But I have to tell you that some of my least favorite visits have been with Christians. For real, have been with Christians. Um, I've had times where I've walked into a room, greeted, welcome, welcome to the unit, introduced myself. Are you saved? How do you know you're saved? When were you saved? Did your life change? How did your life change when you were saved? Ooh, wow. And, and, you know, people like this will often start pontificating about what's wrong with our culture, what's wrong with our churches, what's wrong with our pastors, what's wrong with how our pastors preach, what's wrong with our media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's always this deep theology behind it. Uh, the great irony is that most of the time, I agree with them. I agree with them. But what I hear is anger. And what I hear is judgment. And um, I, 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 I do not judge these brothers and sisters. These are believers in Christ, and they are brothers and sisters. And their relationship with God is their business. And I do not stand in judgment of them. I just want to say that up front. But I have to sit and wonder, when people like that have quiet time with God, how intimate is it? What are their conversations like with God? Are they modeling what David did for us in Psalm 51? That intimacy, that honesty, that humility. Or are they modeling something more akin to what we saw from the Pharisee in Luke 18. For the record, some of my greatest visits have been with Christians as well. Okay, I just want to throw that out there. Um, We look at the text. David continues to petition God, um, renew a right spirit within me, restore me to the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Give me a willing spirit that I may desire to walk in your ways, to walk in your will, um, and sustain me. David is seeking restoration and renewal from God. We go into to verses 13 through 19, and David um, highlights the results of this restoration and renewal, the results of the forgiveness that God has given him. Um, And firstly, in verses 13 through 15, we see that David will testify of and praise God. This is verse 13. So after his heart is restored and renewed, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So we see here David says that he is going to teach God's ways, that he is going to sing of God's righteousness, and that he is going to declare 
God's praise. These are the outflowings, the result of his forgiveness, restoration, and renewal. Real quickly, I want to highlight verse 14 there. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. It looks a little out of place there. I think it is a little out of place. It seems out of place to me. But blood guiltiness is a fancy Bible word for murder. And here, for the murder of Uriah. So we looked earlier, oh, forgive me, Lord, against you, you only, I have sinned. David knows that he murdered Uriah. And he just throws in that petition, forgive me for murder, right in the middle of all this. Okay. Um, going into 16 through 19, down to the end of the psalm, the second response to God's forgiveness. David says that he will worship God from the heart. He will worship God from the heart. Um, Let me read that to you. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Did you just read that with me? I'm the Old Testament law referee, and I'm throwing a flag on David. Did you see what he just wrote? Check this out. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it? Okay, let's sit on this verse for a minute. So here's David, the king of Israel, steeped in this Old Testament sacrificial system that the Jews had. We had this elaborate system and these requirements of animal sacrifices for forgiveness, for purity. And he has the audacity to say, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. David is telling us that worship is a matter of the heart. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. It's about the heart. It's not about what we do. It's about our heart motivation, our relationship with God. David's displaying for us again the heart of the tax collector um, that we see in Jesus' parable. His point is, if you look at wrapping up in 18, he says, then you will delight in right sacrifices, sacrifices, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So he's saying, we get our hearts right, then we'll offer sacrifices. Okay, those are outflowings of his heart in right standing, in right relationship with God. So we human beings are very work-based creatures. 
Uh, that's just the way our world works. That's the way we're wired. We think that we're good because we do good. Most of the religions of the world, other religions, teach that. That you are made good before God because of what you do. Christianity is the opposite. Okay, So we look at something like uh, Ephesians 2. Uh, where Paul wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So David has shown us that we are born in sin, that we have this sin problem and we act accordingly. This sin separates us from one another. This sin separates us from God. And if left unforgiven, that sin separates us from God eternally. That is what we call hell. But Paul teaches us here that The gift of God, the free gift of God through faith is forgiveness. So when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sacrifice that he made on the cross for us, he was the perfectly holy lamb of God. He died upon the cross, the death that we deserve. We are granted this forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we may go and walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. Did you see that? Paul said, so that nobody can boast. This isn't what we do. God has done this for us when we place our faith in him. I was eating lunch with a, with a friend a couple months ago, a, a good Christian brother. And uh, I, I told him about my love for Psalm 51. And I told him that I was contemplating preaching it here today. And um, bearing my heart to him a little bit, I said, uh, man, I, just, I love this psalm. I, I'm stuck in Psalm 51. Rarely does a, a week pass that I do not read Psalm 51 and meditate upon it and, and pray it from a Christian perspective. And my friend, uh, perhaps a bit challengingly, uh, perhaps a bit provocatively said, that's indicative of a greater problem. And that stung a little bit. That stung a little bit. But I sat with it. I sat there with it, and I said, you know what? You're right. It is indicative of a greater problem. I am broken. I am sinful, and I need to be forgiven. I need God's transformative mercy in my life. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're all in that boat. We all have areas of our lives where we struggle, where we fall, 
where we lack faith, where we are consumed by fear and doubt, where we deal with sickness, there are broken relationships and those to whom we should be closest. I mean, it's all around us. We're immersed in this stuff. And we need to be forgiven. We need a Savior. We, we, we need to approach God with all of this stuff and lay it out before him. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to be in this intimate relationship with him. It's not like we're going to go into God's presence with this stuff and he's going to say, Wow, wow, I had no idea, Paul, you were dealing with that. We're not going to surprise him. He's calling us and inviting us into a deeper, more intimate relationship, the kind of relationship that David has modeled for us in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is indeed a template, an example, a guide for praying for repentance. But it's also a template and a model for our relationships with God, of how we approach him, of how we interact with God in our relationships. So my question for you is, what is your relationship like with God? Perhaps you've never even considered God. Perhaps you've never even placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted that forgiveness and felt what it is like to, to be forgiven, to wash in Christ's blood and to be as white as snow. And In fact, the Bible teaches that Christ's righteousness is accounted to us. He gives us his righteousness when we stand before God. Perhaps you've never taken that step. If, if that's the case, come up and talk to me today after the sermon. Come and talk to Pastor Greg. Grab one of the elders. Um, come up and pray with the prayer servants after service. Have that conversation. Go to a friend and, and, and say, hey, man, this is what I'm thinking. Um, it's a huge step, and I encourage you to to not turn from it if you're being moved in that direction. If you are a Christian, is your relationship like David's? Is your relationship more like the tax collector's? Or is your relationship cold? Is it distant? Is it ritualistic? Is it mechanistic? Have you grown away from God? Is it more like the Pharisees' relationship? Only you know the answer to that question, so I encourage you and I challenge you to take an inventory of your relationship with God because he loves you and he is calling all of you into deeper waters in relationship with him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, um, you are merciful and forgiving, and your steadfast love is eternal. Lord, we confess that there are areas in our lives where we struggle, where we fall down, where we um, 
willfully turn our back on you, that you may be justified when you judge. But Lord, we cry out to you. We confess our areas of sin and struggle and brokenness. We pray that you will wash us in the blood of Christ, that you will bathe us in his righteousness, that your Holy Spirit would would well up inside of us and create within us pure hearts, Lord God, that we may proclaim your goodness and sing of your goodness and serve you in good works that bring you honor and glory. We bless you on this day, Lord God. We thank you, Jesus, for dying the death that we deserve. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ.